Hey, Faye, it looks like we've got a great opportunity from our friends at Rosh Review for our chief residents who are studying for their board exams. So Rosh Review is partnering with us to give away some ABOG qualifying exam QBanks, which involves 3,000 questions that can help you guys study either for the qualifying exam or just for your CREOGs. This is a $650 value, so it's an awesome package. And definitely as you're trying to study for those written boards, answering questions is the biggest thing, I think, to try and get prepared. So we think this is an awesome opportunity and we want you to get signed up. So the way to get signed up is to go onto our website at www.creogsovercoffee.com and answer the Rosh Review question of the week for our most recent episode. Once you answer that question at the bottom of the answer explanation page, you'll see another button to sign up for the giveaway. So sign up for the giveaway there and Rosh Review will announce the winners the following Friday. So we hope you take the opportunity to go onto the website, answer the Rosh Review question of the week and see if you win this ABOG qualifying exam QBank package. All right, Nick, so we're done with our boards and uh, CREOGs are over for this year. But, you know, what do we do if we want to keep making sure that we're up to date on the most current OBGYN practices? Yeah, as we get this podcast together every week, we have to always think about our friends over at the OBG Project who have these amazing summaries that are updated every day of the week, encompassing the latest research, encompassing newest practices, um, and also posting things like Grand Rounds where they get into the controversies of modern obstetric and gynecologic practice. And for all you residents out there, they also have a great core curriculum for you to study from. Um, we know that you probably want to break after CREOGS, but definitely something to, worth checking out. And for all you chief residents out there, you can get one-year subscription to OBG First absolutely free. Head over to our website, CREOGSOverCoffee.com. Check out the sidebar. Chiefs, find out how you can get OBG First absolutely free. And residents, get signed up for the core curriculum. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. Coffee. Right. So after a long sojourn, Faye, into the world of gynecology, we're finally coming back to something that I feel like <laughs> is more in our wheelhouse. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we're going to talk soft markers today. What are our learning objectives? All right, so today we're going to discuss the indications and use of ultrasound soft markers on second trimester ultrasound. Um, we're going to talk about the different soft markers and their associations with aneuploidy specifically, and we're also going to understand the management and follow-up of these soft markers if you see them. For those of you who want to follow along with reading, you can look at the SMFM Consult Series 57. All right, so Nick, start us off. You know, what are ultrasound soft markers, and why do we care if we see them? Yeah, I think that's a funny question, Faye, especially now in this era of cell-free DNA, um, where one might reasonably ask, like, what exactly is the utility of a soft marker for aneuploidy? Aren't they just poor predictors of aneuploidy that we now have these much better tests to look for anyways that right. we can see yeah. before <laughs> the second trimester ultrasound? So soft markers were originally thought of and used and introduced as a way to improve the detection of Down syndrome over that of just age-based or serum-based screening alone. Um, and while it's true that each isolated soft marker might be a poor predictor, if we see multiple soft markers, that improves our sensitivity for our testing. 
There may be some misunderstanding of soft markers seen on ultrasound as well. And so one of the hopes that we have here is to review some of these within the setting of cell-free DNA and to discuss next steps. Um, we're discussing isolated soft markers today though. So we're not talking about seeing multiple altogether or if they're associated with other anomalies or fetal growth restriction or particular single gene syndromes, for instance. And finally, one of the other things that we have to keep plugging away now is that a patient's baseline risk should not limit their screening options, and cell-free DNA should be offered to all patients regardless of risk per ACOG and SMFM. All right, so let's get into it, Faye. What soft markers are we going to talk about? Yeah, so specifically in this podcast, we're going to address things like single umbilical artery, echogenic bowel, renal pyelectasis, choroid plexus cysts, echogenic cardiac focus, shortened long bones like the humerus and the femur, thickened nuchal fold, and absent or hypoplastic nasal bone. And I know that a lot of you are hearing this and going, oh my gosh, you know, absolute nightmare when I see this on like the anatomy scan. What do I do next, right? So in general, what are the first steps? So first you want to make sure that the soft marker is truly isolated. Um, if you are the person doing the ultrasound, you know, look for other soft markers, look for things like fetal growth restrictions or other anomalies. Because if this is not an isolated soft marker, then, you know, this podcast is not going to apply to that. So then if you feel that your office is not equipped to do something like this, you mean to like do a deeper dive to look for other congenital anomalies, then you can always refer to maternal fetal medicine to have a level two ultrasound performed. And this, of course, would be in discussion with the patient because not all patients may want further evaluation. The other thing to look into is the patient's history. So what is their baseline risk, their age, their family history, their history of aneuploidy? And have they had previous aneuploidy screening tests? And what are those results? I think kind of like to go step by step in my mind, I always think, you know, first of all, have they had cell-free DNA? Most of the time with these soft markers, if they're truly isolated, there's really not very much to do after that. But we'll go through each of these together. And this is because after a cell-free DNA, the post-test probability of a Kahneman aneuploidy like trisomy 21 with a negative cell-free DNA is very, very low. It's lowered by 300 times for Down syndrome. And per the consult series, the residual risk of, for example, a 35-year-old woman whose age-related risk of Downs is 1 in 356 is reduced to less than 1 in 50,000 after a negative cell-free DNA. The question that then happens, of course, is what if they didn't have cell-free DNA? So if they've had negative serum screening, that's also okay and may not require further testing at this time because the detection rate of serum screening for Down syndrome is still very high, about 81 to 99%, depending on the test that you're looking at. However, if the patient has had no screening at all, then this is a patient that you may want to counsel about non-invasive aneuploidy testing. And remember, not all patients will want screening. There really isn't an established cutoff for residual risk when it, it comes to recommendation to do some form of diagnostic testing. So many labs will establish a cutoff of 1 in 250 or 1 in 300. But again, there's really no like true set cutoff. And SMFM actually doesn't recommend diagnostic testing for aneuploidy solely based on evaluation of an isolated soft marker following a negative serum or cell-free DNA screening result. All right, Nick, so let's break this down further. Let's start to talk about some of these soft markers one by one. Yeah, so... I'm going to start off with the echogenic cousins, if you will, um, yeah. echogenic <laughs> intracardiac focus or EIF and echogenic bowel. So an EIF is a small 
specifically defined as a less than six millimeter echogenic area in either cardiac ventricle that's at least as bright as the surrounding bone and seen in two separate planes. These are seen in three to five percent of normal fetuses, so they're actually really common. Um, and so the likelihood ratio for trisomy 21 is pretty low. It's 1.4 to 1.8 or even extending to less than that. Ultimately, if an EIF is seen, you should just perform cell-free DNA or a quad screen if cell-free DNA isn't available. In the setting of an isolated echogenic intracardiac focus, there's no need to perform diagnostic testing. Um, and then there's also no need for fetal echo, further ultrasound, or postnatal evaluation in the setting of an isolated EIF either. These do not necessarily translate into distinct cardiac pathology. Many of them will resolve on a third trimester ultrasound, but there's not a need to continue to follow these. Echogenic bowel is the second of these echogenic ones that is defined as bowel that's as bright as bone. Um, and I know that's the second time that I've said that, bright as bone. So what exactly does that mean? If you're an ultrasound nerd, you got to work on your dials a little bit. So you got to turn your harmonics off and you got to turn your gain all the way down. Some machines actually let you measure the brightness. That way you can actually see between the two and get an objective sense of that brightness. But again, that requires a lot of nobology that most folks don't need to know. And to be frank, I also don't know how to work on the knobs. And <laughs> um, I can turn the harmonics off and that's pretty much about it. <laughs> but in any case, with echogenic bowel coming back again, you've determined that it's bright as bone. Um, echogenic bowel can be seen in almost 2% of second trimester anatomy scans. It can be normal, um, but also has a number of associations with aneuploidy, with cystic fibrosis, with viral syndromes, with a primary GI pathology, um, intraamniotic bleeding, and fetal growth restriction. The estimated rate of aneuploidy in fetuses with isolated echogenic bowel is around 3 to 5%, and Down syndrome leads the way um, in terms of common diagnoses here. Um, but again, these other abnormalities have been reported. Um, and then the most positive likelihood ratios for trisomy 21 in echogenic bowel is somewhere between 6 to 8. So this does represent a moderately increased risk. So if you do find echogenic bowel, cell-free DNA or a quad screen should be performed if the cell-free is not available. Um, and then again, in the setting of isolated echogenic bowel, diagnostic testing is not necessarily indicated straight away. You should evaluate the patient for carrier testing for cystic fibrosis if that hasn't been done already. Um, and you should also do some additional history taking, for instance, for viral infections, um, for CMV and parvovirus. Um, you can consider getting titers for IgG and IgM for cytomegalovirus, um, and if you're really suspicious for CMV, if you're seeing other things like growth restriction or other sort of anomalies, you can get an amniocentesis at that point. If you don't have those things and it's just the echogenic bowel and you had a normal cell-free DNA, a third trimester ultrasound is recommended still um, because there is some association of echogenic bowel and later fetal growth restriction. Finally, pediatric providers should be made aware of a prenatal finding of echogenic bowel. Not all echogenic bowel is going to necessarily be followed up in postnatal life, but it is something that does help them with differential diagnoses later if there is a problem that comes up. So the next thing we'll talk about is choroid plexus cysts. Um, and I feel like 
I've seen this like so many times on ultrasound reports as a resident. I was like, what is a choroid plexus cyst? So it's a small fluid-filled structure within the choroid of the lateral ventricles of the fetal brain, and it's seen in 1-2% to of fetuses in the second trimester. It is present in 30-50% to of fetuses with trisomy 18, and if there are other structural abnormalities, the likelihood ratio is actually really high for trisomy 18, about 66. But if it's isolated, the likelihood ratio for aneuploidy is overall quite low, 0.9 to 5.6. So if you see this, see if the patient has cell-free DNA or quad screen, um, if cell-free DNA is not available. And if these are negative, then no further aneuploid evaluation is needed because it can also be a normal variant and no further ultrasound or postnatal evaluation is indicated as well. The next thing I wanted to talk about is the single umbilical artery or the two-vessel cord. Um, and this is exactly what it sounds like when you do um, an ultrasound and you have that cross-section of the cord, you see two vessels instead of three. Or when you do um, a picture of the uh, vessel kind of you know, splitting around the bladder, you only see one instead of two arteries. This is um, seen in 025 to 1% of all singleton pregnancies. And if there are other abnormalities, um, then the frequency of aneuploidy is somewhere between 4 to 50%. But if it's isolated, there is no increased risk but can be associated with fetal growth restriction. So again, um, you know, there's no additional evaluation that's really needed for aneuploidy, but you should do a comprehensive cardiac anatomy uh, on ultrasound to make sure that there are no cardiac abnormalities. We do recommend a third trimester ultrasound for growth um, and consider weekly testing starting at 36 weeks per the SMFM consult series. Moving on to kidneys, um, we're next going to talk about urinary tract dilation or what you may have heard as pyelectasis. Um, pyelectasis is defined as dilation of the renal pelvis that is greater than 4 millimeters for fetuses between 16 and 27 weeks and greater than 7 millimeters once the fetus is greater than 27 weeks. This is pretty common as well. It occurs in 1-2% to 2 of pregnancies, and most of these are a normal variant. Um, it actually occurs in male fetuses a bit more than female fetuses as well. The likelihood ratio for trisomy 21 with pyelectasis is 1.5, so overall represents a pretty minimal risk. If pyelectasis is seen, then certainly, as we've talked about with many of these others, um, some sort of serum screening with cell-free DNA or a quad screen should be considered. And then pyelectasis does require a degree of follow-up. Um, you should get a third trimester ultrasound at or after 32 weeks in the setting of isolated pyelectasis to determine if it's persistent, because then the patient may need to meet with urology, um, pediatric urology, for postnatal follow-up. If there's pyelectasis that for some reason didn't get followed up prior to 28 weeks and it was greater than seven millimeters, or if the pyelectasis progresses and is greater than 10 millimeters after 28 weeks, um, postnatal follow-up is going to be recommended by the urologists. The next soft marker is a bony soft marker, and it's the short long bone, so a short humerus or femur. Um, so there are nomograms that are associated with each gestational age for both the humerus and the femur lengths, and both of these ratios are an observed to expected ratio that fall around 0.9. For a short humerus, the likelihood ratio for trisomy 21 is actually fairly significant, um, between 5 and 7.5. A short femur alone, the likelihood ratio, by contrast, is 1.5 to 2.7. Um, short long bones are also associated with other pathologies such as skeletal dysplasias and fetal growth restriction. 
Certainly again, cell-free DNA or quad screen is recommended. If that screening is negative, then not necessarily any further testing is indicated, um, but you should measure all of the additional bones. So not only are you gonna measure the long bones, the humerus and the femur, but you're gonna measure things like the tibia and fibula, uh, the radius and ulna, if we've got any folks out there who are attached to orthopedic folks, then maybe you can turn up the podcast a little louder now and get a little bit of uh, attention. Because <laughs> <laughs> again, we don't typically think about these with babies, but you are going to think about them again if you're thinking about skeletal dysplasias, osteogenesis imperfecta, etc. And then again, because of the association with growth restriction, continuing to monitor these babies with third trimester scan is uh, reasonable and appropriate. All right, so the last two soft markers we'll talk about are the thickened nuchal fold and the hypoplastic or absent nasal bone. So the thickened nuchal fold is um, seen when you do a transverse plane of the fetal head and you angle that ultrasound a little bit caudally. So you see the occipital bone and the skin edge. And if that measurement is greater than or equal to six millimeters between 15 to 20 weeks, that's defined as a thickened nuchal fold. The positive likelihood ratio overall for trisomy 21 is actually pretty significant. It's 11 to 23, which is substantial. However, if isolated, the likelihood uh, ratio drops to about 3.8. These are patients where you want to counsel them about doing cell-free DNA or a quad screen if the cell-free DNA is not available. Um, and you can do a diagnostic testing like amniocentesis if they have a negative serum screen and cell-free DNA is not available. This will, of course, be dependent on the counseling of the patient, patient preference, um, and risk tolerance. If the patient has negative cell-free DNA and isolated nuchal fold thickening, then actually no further evaluation is needed. With regards to the hypoplastic or absent nasal bone, this is when you have a perpendicular to longitudinal axis of the nose in the mid-sagittal plane of the fetal face. Um, and when you're looking at the bone, either it's not there or it's measuring less than 2.5 millimeters or is less than the 2.5th percentile. That's when it's considered hypoplastic. This can occur in about 0.1 to 1.2% of euploid pregnancies, and the likelihood ratio for T21 is about 6.6. Again, we want to counsel patients about cell-free DNA or quad screen if the cell-free DNA is not available, um, but you also can do a diagnostic testing if cell-free DNA is not available off the bat. And you can also do it if there's just a negative serum screen and no cell-free DNA. Again, this is going to depend on the patient's risk tolerance and their preference. But again, if they have a negative cell-free DNA and this is an isolated finding, then you actually don't need to do any further evaluation. All right, Faye, I think that does it for this episode. I'm not sure if it'll help us to try and summarize today, um, but you've put together this really amazing table that's going to be on the website um, with a summary of the podcast, as well as some great photos that'll hopefully help tie our words um, with the pictures that you might see on ultrasounds at your patients or on the CREAC exam. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think this brings us to the end of this podcast, Nick. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating interview. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, and if you want to support the show, go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Give us a donation, we'll give you a shout out on the show or some swag. You can find show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes, as well as the Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, CreogsOverCoffee.com. If you have a suggestion for the show, you find a mistake, or just want to give us a shout out, go ahead and email us, CreogsOverCoffee at gmail.com.